0: Well, nothing really um, grates on us more, especially as Americans, than when other people try to tell us what to do. Um, There's just this natural rebellion that seems to be in our hearts where we don't like rules, we don't like laws. You know, if you look at speed limits, for example, um, you know, the powers that be come in and they say speed limit is 65, and we say, okay, well, that's where I'll start driving. Um, (laughs) 65 is is kind of my minimum because you just called it a limit. And if someone's driving 64 down the expressway, we're like, come on. Right lane, get over, turn on your flashers if something's wrong. We, we just don't like those limits. We don't like those laws being imposed on us. Uh, when, when I was in college for my undergrad, I went to a very strict Bible college, and they had a lot of rules about appearance. And so there were rules that we couldn't cut our hair too short, uh, rules that we couldn't have any facial hair. And um, so obviously I've rebelled pretty far against those standards. Like there's, uh, uh, we get these rules put on us, and there's something in our hearts that just says, nobody is going to tell me what to do. And when we look at Jesus, uh, one of the most frustrating or beautiful things about Jesus, depending on how you receive him, is that Jesus claims to have ultimate authority over everything. Believing in Jesus is not just a matter of going to a church, but of worshiping him as God. Recognizing that every square inch of our lives, everything, all falls under his authority. Now, this is frustrating when we want to be our own authority, but when we see what kind of good authority that Jesus is, then we see it as a beautiful thing. So if you just remember our setting here in Mark 11, Jesus has been teaching in the temple, and he's been flipping over tables saying, you guys are doing it wrong. You've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Uh, You have made this place just a place for commerce when it's supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. And so he's flipping out saying, this is my house and you're messing it up. And if we didn't know Jesus and we came in and we saw that scene, we would say, who does this guy think that he is? And that's what happens here in Mark 11, verse 27. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? So these guys run the temple, and now God had told them how to run it, I have no idea what that is. I'm sorry. So, (laughs) welcome to Grace Road. Um, So, (laughs) it's like coming out. Anyway, I'm sure everything's fine. Um, So, these guys, (laughs) these religious leaders, they they run this temple. Um, God had told them how to run it, He had given them the laws, given them the parameters. They were supposed to run it as the managers of the temple. uh, But instead, they start to run it almost like they're God like they've got the authority over the place, like they own the place. And so here comes Jesus, and he's in their house, but he's not playing by their rules. And so they go up and they question him. Uh, they, they basically say, Jesus, where are your papers? Um, I mean, you're, you're not a certified rabbi. Nobody's given you permission to teach here. You're just this Galilean peasant. So why should all these people who are out there ever listen to you? Where do you get off messing with our religious system? And this is a reasonable question. If someone comes in and they start to make some really authoritative outlandish claims, the first question we would ask is, who gave you the authority? Does this person have authority to make those claims? You know, if someone came in the back of the room uh, as we were gathered and started shouting, man, it's an emergency, Canada's attacking. Um, We would look at that guy and the first question we'd be asking is, does this guy have authority? You know, if he's kind of dressed as a clown and stumbling all over, we would probably say, I think we're safe. Um, I don't think that's true. But if the president were to come on the radio and say, it's an emergency, Canada has mustered their army, and they're attacking, they're invading, then we'd say, well, we need to respond to that because that guy does have authority. So we would do what's necessary to fend off the Canadian army, which would probably involve baseball bats and BB guns and things, to, to, to defend ourselves. And so... So when someone comes and they make these big claims, the first thing we say is, what kind of authority does this person have to make those claims? And so here's Jesus making those claims. The religious leaders know that as he makes those claims, it will undermine their authority. So they have to go and undermine him. They have to go and try to prove that Jesus is just some crazy guy in a clown suit. We don't have to listen to anything that he says. We can ignore this crazy Galilean. So their plan is to go and trap him and expose him and make him look like a fool and an idiot in front of all these people. To try to make him expose the fact that he doesn't have papers, he doesn't have credentials, he doesn't have anyone who's certified him to teach, so we shouldn't listen to him. He's just crazy. So that's what they try to do. So verse 20, so they come up to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus says, I'll answer your question, but first answer mine. So they come up and they're trying to trap him. They're trying to make him look bad, trying to make him expose his ignorance and that nobody's ever endorsed him. But he sees that it's a trap and he turns the tables on them and sets a trap for them. So here's how this thing is a trap. Um, John the Baptist was, remember, he was the one who announced the coming of Jesus. He was a good guy. He was a godly guy. He was the one that Jesus said there's never been anyone greater who's been born of woman than John the Baptist. So he was a great and awesome guy. He was Jesus' crazy redneck cousin who lived out in the wilderness and called people to repent of their sins, get baptized, and to trust in Jesus who was coming. And the population loved this guy. He was super popular. Everybody loved John the Baptist. In fact, back in Mark chapter one, verse five, it says all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this guy, John, turned an awful lot of people from their sins to God. And when someone does that for you, they have your heart. You know, I look back and, and the guy who led me to Jesus Christ, who invested his life in me, he's a guy that I would take a bullet for um, because he turned my heart to Christ. And so here's John the Baptist who had turned the hearts of many people to Jesus Christ. He had turned them to trust in him, turned them to believe in Christ, turned them to, to know that he was the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. A lot of people came to God because of him, and so they loved John the Baptist. And then on top of that, John the Baptist had become a martyr. Um, remember, he had spoken up and told Herod, hey, you shouldn't be marrying your, your, your brother's wife. And the brother's wife, who was married to him, said, hey, listen, this this is a pretty good gig for me. I don't like you. And so they end up having John the Baptist beheaded because of what he was saying. So he was well-loved while he was alive. He was kind of a rock star. And then they cut off his head, and he becomes a martyr. So he's a big deal. Everybody's rallying around John the Baptist. Everybody loves John the Baptist. And this creates a problem for these guys who run the temple. Because they didn't really like John. John. And they definitely didn't like what John had to say about Jesus. Um, in fact, in Mark chapter one verse six, it, it teaches that John's whole ministry was to point people to Jesus. It says John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, "After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." And John loved Jesus. He said that Jesus was greater than he was. In, in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist actually says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. His whole role is to point people to Jesus and say, this Jesus guy does have authority. So what do these guys who run the temple do with John? Um, they, they don't want to say too much about John the Baptist. They're hoping that his memory will just go away because he was the one who gave Jesus credibility. So they come up and they try to trap Jesus and he says, okay, I'll answer your question, but first you've got to answer mine. What do you make of John the Baptist? Come right out and tell us. So verse 31, it says, And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So if they come out and they say, we believe in John the Baptist, we like him, then he would say, well, there's my authority right there, John the Baptist. I'm the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Why don't you believe him? If they say that John the Baptist was not from God, that he was just a man, that he was just a crazy redneck, then all the people will swarm them because they love John the Baptist. This would be like walking into a room full of junior high girls and saying, listen, Justin Bieber's a loser. Um, you, you it would be like an attack scene in The Walking Dead. You, you'd get devoured at that point. And so, so they don't know what to do. They're trapped. And so here they are. They're trying to make Jesus look like an idiot. They're trying to make Jesus look stupid. They're trying to prove that Jesus has no authority. He turns the tables on them. They have no idea how to answer his question. So verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. So look what Jesus just did. He made them look like the idiots. He exposed them as frauds. They were trying to expose him, but there was nothing to expose. And he exposed that they can't even answer a question that all these people in the temple have an answer for. These people in the temple all know that John the Baptist was from God. They all know that he was good. They all know that God sent him. And you can't answer that question. So who is it who doesn't have authority over this place now? So now their authority is in question And Jesus shows himself to be all-wise. He knows their thoughts. He knows their intents. He doesn't fall into their trap because God is always wiser than man. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18. It says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So you can't hide your thoughts and intents and your ways from Jesus. He knows all, he sees all, he's all wise, and the people who think they're wiser than him end up getting caught in their craftiness. The guys who try to make Jesus look like a fool look like fools themselves, and then they end up having to lie to get out of it, and they end up just saying, well, we don't know. We just don't know the answer to that question. They knew what their answer was. Their answer was that John the Baptist was crazy, and he was just from man But instead of saying, we don't want to say because these people won't like us, they say, we don't know. And they lie. And so then Jesus responds in verse 33. It says, and Jesus said to them, not that he doesn't know, but he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus refuses to answer their question, but it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he doesn't answer to them. He's the authority. He's the one who runs this place. If I go home and I decide to rearrange the furniture in our family room, um, I can do that because I own the place. Um, that's, that's my house. And my daughter, Isabel, can't come up to me and say, Dad, um, who told you you could rearrange the couches? Well, nobody told me I could rearrange the couches. I can just rearrange them. Um, okay, mom could tell me. But no, I, I'm going to, I can mess things up because this is my place. Um, now, I can, a good parent should, as often as we can, explain to our kids why we do things so that they can learn to be adults. But, um, but I don't have to answer to my kids. It, I can give them an answer, but it's my house, so I don't have to answer to them. I don't have to sit down with my daughter and prove to her that I actually have authority to move the furniture. I have the authority, so I can just move it. And so Jesus comes into the temple, and he starts rearranging the furniture. He starts flipping over the tables, casting out the money changers. These guys come up, and they say, by what authority are you doing this? And he says, I have authority over this place. I don't even have to answer you. I'm not telling you who gave me authority, because you're not the person that I answer to. You answer to me. Now, big shots hate this. Big shots hate it when somebody exposes them. They hate it when somebody comes up and shows that they're a fraud, when somebody doesn't answer to their authority, when somebody doesn't jump through their hoops. Big shots hate that kind of thing. But Jesus here, he isn't hiding anything. Uh, He's explained himself. I mean, he's never denied the fact that he was God. He's never denied the fact that he was the Messiah. He just refuses to submit to the authority of these guys who run the temple. Now, there are other times when people who love Jesus and want to believe in Jesus, they come up and they ask about who he is, and he's very clear with them. Like if you look at John chapter 10, verse 24, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones against, again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the father for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man Make yourself God. So Jesus very clearly announced that he was God at certain times in his ministry. It was so clear that these guys are picking up rocks, ready to kill him for it. So it's not that he was hiding who he was. It's not that he's hiding that he's the Messiah. It's the fact that he won't submit to the authority of these guys who think they have authority over the temple because he has the ultimate authority. Now, worshiping and following Jesus means that we live like that's the case. It means that we live like Jesus is the ultimate authority. uh, His teachings are not just a buffet where we take some from here and some from here and we pick what we like and we ignore the rest of it. If Jesus is the authority, that's not the way that we can relate to him. If Jesus is the authority, then when he speaks, it's true. And when I have a problem with Jesus, what he teaches about money or what he teaches about sex or what he teaches about my future and my plans, if I have a problem with the things that he teaches in those areas, then the problem is mine because he is that ultimate authority. And the Bible being his word, being written by guys that he said would go and teach everybody who he was has to be accepted as the authoritative word of Jesus. It was at the Gospel Coalition conference last week, and Tim Keller talked, and he said, one of the big problems in our age is we're so um, so dominated by social media that we go through Facebook, and we're good at just kind of clicking like on the things that we like. And we tend to read our Bibles in the same way. We go through, and it gets some likes here and there. And you know, we like that God loves us. We like that God will provide for us. We like that he'll comfort us when we mourn, and those things are all true. But then there are other things that he says that we don't like, so we just ignore them. Or we... Put our little comment on them. I think this should change. But if Jesus is the authority, then we don't have any grounds for doing that. He, he's not just your, new, your news feed where you can pick the likes and, and ignore some dislikes. He's God. He's ultimate. He, he offers, uh, he, he comes in and says that he reigns over our lives. In Keller's book, The King's Cross, he says this. Uh, he says, either you have to kill him or you have to crown him. The one thing that you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. These teachers of the law who began plotting to kill Jesus at the end of this episode in the temple, they may have been dead wrong about him, but their reaction makes perfect sense. So that's the question for us. When Jesus comes and he claims to have this much authority, when he claims that every square inch of the universe is his, that even that temple belongs to him, are we going to crown him? And say, that's true, you're the king? Or are we going to kill him and dismiss him? But we can't settle for an in-between. We can't settle for a Jesus as buffet model of living. We kill him or we crown him. We have to decide which we're going to do. Jesus doesn't have checks and balances on his power. He's not wrong about anything that he demands. So if we don't like what he says about our calendar or about our bedroom or about our wallet, We need to crown him if we're going to claim to be worshippers and followers of Jesus and say that you are the king over all these things. You're not checked. You're not balanced. You're a lion, and you're not a safe and tame lion. Now, again, we hear that, and as Americans, we don't like it. Someone claiming to have ultimate authority. And by the way, I'm not saying that our church has ultimate authority over your life. I'm not saying that I have ultimate authority over your life. Jesus Has ultimate authority. His word, the Bible, has that kind of ultimate authority over our lives. And we hear that and we hate it. It just grates on us the wrong way because we want to be our own gods. We want to run things. But the next thing that we're going to see in this passage should give us the confidence to follow his authority and actually want it. So, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent to the other servant, um, and he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed. And they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So Jesus tells a story about a guy who makes an investment. He goes out and he does the hard work of breaking up the ground to plant a vineyard um, so that he can produce some wine. Um, if you're a Baptist, he was making grape juice. And so, so that's what he goes out to do. Um, he gets it growing. He, he builds a fence. He makes a wine press, juice press, and, um, and gets all that gets the business running. He does that hard work, makes the initial investment, gets, a bunch of, gets the thing running, and then he says, you know, I can rest a little bit. I can hire some other people. I can lease this to them. I'll just go and sit on the beach while they do the hard work, and I'll just take some profits. I'll just receive a lease, and, and that'll be good. I'll retire from here on out. So, so this guy goes. He's on a beach in Italy, and he sends a servant out to collect the lease payment. But when he gets there, instead of paying what they said they would pay, they beat him. That doesn't make sense. So he sends a second servant, and they they take that servant, and they mock him, and they beat him. And he's sending servants to where people are even dying because they're trying to collect the lease that rightfully belongs to the owner. So the managers, the guys who are running the vineyard, the guys who are saying they have authority, even though their authority is under the authority of the owner, they're wicked, they're murderous, they're greedy, and everything has become all about them. It's no longer about turning a profit for the owner but it's all about them keeping the profits, them running the place, them treating the thing like it exists for their benefit. Now we look at that, and the landlord at this point should probably be sending in a militia. He should probably be sending in soldiers to go and collect the lease that's his, but this guy does something surprising. Verse 6, it says, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, They will respect my son. So he sends his son, because his son's not just a servant. His son is the heir. Um, This place is his. He has real authority over this vineyard. So you would expect that when the son shows up, that all those wicked managers would say, wow, this is this guy's place. We've got to give him what's rightfully his. But verse 7, it says, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So these servants, when the sun comes, they kill him because they want the vineyard. They want the prophets, they want the authority, they want the power, they want the money. They don't want to be managers, they want to be owners. They want this whole thing to exist for them, not for some other owner that's out there. So they kill the heir. God had planted his vineyard, Israel. He had raised up teachers, he had raised up leaders to lead and care for the flock among his people. But these leaders who were supposed to care for God's vineyard, who were supposed to teach them well and lead them well, they started to want to own the place. They started to push God out of their thinking and say, this place exists for my glory, for my benefit. These people exist for my benefit. And instead of recognizing that these people are supposed to be well-managed underneath the authority of the owner, they said, these people exist for me. And instead of being good shepherds, they became wolves who started preying on those sheep, and it was a disgusting thing. So God sent his servants. He sent prophets, and those prophets would come and they would announce the word of the Lord, but time and time again, they beat the prophets, they mocked the prophets, they sawed the prophets in half. Those managers who were supposed to be managing the thing well were dismissing all of the rightful claims of the owner over that land. And now at the time when the owner could have sent a militia, he sends his son. He sends Jesus. You you would think because Jesus had authority over the vineyard, because Jesus was God himself, that those people would see him coming into Israel and they would say, this thing is yours. Um, Take it, it's yours. All the prophets, all the people, all the power, all the it's all yours, Jesus. But instead, when the sun comes in, when the air comes in, they say, let's kill him. Now, in the story that Jesus tells, this son comes to the vineyard and he doesn't have a chance to run away. He goes in fully expecting that these people will bow down, that they'll apologize, that they'll pay their lease, that he'll be able to bring the prophets back to the Father. But instead, when he gets there and he knocks on the door, they bring him in and they kill him. That's how it goes in the story that Jesus tells. But Jesus is telling that story from the inside. Remember, he's the son that the wicked managers are going to kill. In Jesus' story, the guy who's killed is surprised by his death. But for Jesus... This isn't going to be a surprise. He knows where this thing is going. He knows that he's the son who's come back to the vineyard, and he knows that the wicked managers are going to take him and are going to kill him, but still, he's right there. He doesn't run away, he doesn't go out and try to to get himself safe from the danger. He steps into the danger, he knows where the story is going, and he doesn't get captured, but he gives himself. He gives his life. So we look at the authority of Jesus, and he's already shown us in this passage that he's a wise authority. He was wiser than the the authorities over the temple at that day. He's already shown us that he's courageous because he's willing to speak his mind and look at a crowd and say, I will not tell you guys by what authority I do these things. He's wise, he's courageous, he demands that everything submit to his rule because he's the authority. But here we see that he's also an authority that loves And we don't like having anyone over us. We don't like having anyone tell us what to do. But Jesus Christ is the authority who tells us what to do, but then also lays down his life for us, who also gives us all. He has all power. He has all wisdom. He has all knowledge. But also he is relentlessly loving, even to the point where he would give his life for us. And when we believe that, then that creates in our hearts a desire to yield to his authority. Because authority isn't just strength, it isn't just power, it's also good. He is a lion, and he's not a safe lion, he's not a tame lion, but he is a good lion. And so when we see his authority, we may not like it, but when we see his love, when we see his goodness, it should create in us a willingness to yield to it, because it's always good, he's always out for our good, and if he weren't, he never would have died for us. I think there are some secondary applications for those of us who are Christian leaders here. You know, sometimes God gives his people positions of authority and leadership under the leadership of Christ. We become like these managers in his vineyard. And husbands have that authority. Parents have that authority. Uh, pastors, ministry leaders, grace group leaders have some authority. And, and those of us who have authority over others, we have to remember that, number one, we're only managers. We're not the owners. And these religious leaders, these managers started to think that they were the owners of God's people. Um, that God had had entrusted them to care for these people, but they started to become the lords over them. And they started to think this whole thing is all about us. And the warning here is that there will be consequences when you lead that way. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus said, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, historically, this happened. You know, the the wicked managers in Israel, they were running the thing into the ground. They were doing a bad job. They were being lords over the people. So God came and he gave that to others. He gave his kingdom to the church, and that's what's going on in our day. Um, God had taken it away from those managers and given it to someone else. But a warning for us when we lead is that God loves those that we lead. God's put us into the positions where we're leaders, and we need to use those positions well And use them in such a way so that God is honored, so that it's all about God, and so that we don't become the wicked managers and lords in those places where God's called us to lead. And so if you lead a group, if you lead a church, if you lead a family, you need to look to the leadership of Jesus for your pattern on how that's done. I mean, imagine that um, you're you're at work, and the CEO of your company comes in, and you're a manager there. And your CEO, he says to you, hey, here's the deal. Um, My son just graduated from college and I want to give him a start. So I'm going to give him a job working for you. You're going to manage him, and I want you to manage him well, treat him like you treat any other worker, give him a chance to learn, give him a chance to grow. I want to kind of give him a start here. Probably someday he's going to be running the company, but I just want him to be treated normally and and give him a shot right now. When you go to work the next day and the CEO's son is working for you, you're going to lead him probably a little differently than you might lead the other people that work for you. Because you know that anything that you do, he's going to be going home and reporting to dad. Um, and so, so you're going to be gentle. You're going to care for him well. Anytime that you have to correct him, it's going to be a very gentle, very careful thing because it's all got to be about developing him into a better worker. You can't be self-serving. You're going to be really careful about your motives. You're not going to overstep bounds because you know someday this guy could be the boss. You know, Any time that we lead, we've got to remember that those that we lead are children of the king. They're children of the owner. And so the way that we lead them should reflect that. Which means we don't become domineering, wicked managers. We become managers who steward the whole thing so that God could be honored. And so, so we have to make sure we recognize that we're managers, not owners. And then number two, we've got to recognize that the way that we lead should be the way that Jesus led. You know, the Bible, in Ephesians 5, for example, it says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Um, The Bible does teach the leadership of the husband in a home, but pretty often the guys who talk the most about that are some of the worst leaders in their home because they're so domineering, because they're so mean, because they're, they're so authoritative and sometimes even violent in the way that they lead their wives and lead their families, and that's not the kind of leadership that Christ has called us to. The kind of leadership that he's called us to is leadership that lays down your life for those that you lead. So yeah, husbands are are heads of the wife. The Bible clearly teaches that. And it also, in that same passage, teaches that we're supposed to love our wives like Jesus loves the church. And Jesus loved the church by giving his life for the church, by laying down his rights, by laying down his preferences, by giving up his comfort for our comfort, by giving up his good for our good, by giving up his life for our life, and that's the way that we're called to lead. That's the way we lead our homes. Uh, Christian leaders, that's the way we lead the ministries that God's called us to. You know, I think as Christian leaders, we, we, we're at risk. And the risk is that we have this Bible, that every word of it is from God. We believe it to be God's word. We have these people that we lead. We're put into positions where we can believe that God put us in those positions. And we can lead with God's authority. But that kind of power can attract an awful lot of people who just love power. That kind of, of weight can attract people who just love weight, who just love being right. And you can look around at at pastoral ministry and you can see that it's just a feeding ground sometimes for manipulative, manipulative, domineering people. But we've got to look at Jesus in the way that he wielded power, the way that he laid down his life for his flock, and we need to follow that pattern. But the ultimate point of this passage is not just that we should wield authority well, it's that Jesus is that perfect authority, and we all fall short. Verse 10, Jesus says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. people who want to be important, people who want to be in control, they'll reject everybody else's authority. But people who just want to know what's true who just want to see who should rightfully rule, who just want the good and ultimate and best authority, they're the ones who will look at Jesus and say, he's the one who should rule, he's right. People who are humble and who will receive Jesus' authority, we find that to be this marvelous, awesome thing that there is no better place to live than under the authority and control of Jesus. But people who want to run the show themselves will hate it. When we submit to Jesus, he becomes marvelous in our eyes. He becomes not just a king, but a good king. Not just an authority, but a loving authority. Not just someone who commands us, but someone who gives all to us. We see that, and that's marvelous, and we find that submitting to that, there is no better life. It's a hard life. There are many struggles when we try to submit to that, but nothing is better than living under that lordship of Jesus. If we see his authority, we hear his claims, and we reject them, and we run away. We'll stumble over him, and we'll break. So we look at Jesus, and he's marvelous. We look at Jesus, and he's good. He's wonderful. He's wise. Why do we hold anything back in our following of him? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. Christians, when we worship Jesus, we're saying that he's God. We're saying that he is ultimate we're saying that he has rule and authority over our lives and, and we're rejoicing that he leads us not as a tyrant, but as a lover. That he comes and he gives all to us and his call for us to follow him is, is a call to abandon an awful lot, but it's also a call to our deepest joy. So let's just examine ourselves. Where are the areas that we're saying, Jesus, you can't have control of this? These relationships, you can't control. My bedroom, you can't control. How I spend my time, how I spend my energy, how I spend my money, you can't control those things. I'm going to pick some of your teachings and love those, and I'm going to dismiss the others. Well, that's not worshiping Jesus as God. That's eating at the Jesus buffet, and it's very different. So ask the Spirit to reveal those things to you and confess to you the ways that you haven't yielded to his control. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, the Christian message is a marvelous one if you'll receive it. The Christian message is that, yeah, we've been wicked. We've been sinful. We, we have rebelled against God. But even though we were rebellious against him and tried to kill all the, every, all the messengers that he sent our way, he came and he gave his life for us. Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he rose again so that we could turn from our sin and turn from our unbelief and trust in him and have everlasting life. The Christian message is that there's nothing good that we do to connect ourselves to God. No amount of effort, no amount of good works gets us connected to him because we've all fallen short. We've all got the blots on our resume. We've all got the sins in our past. And because of that, we all deserve God's judgment. We all deserve hell. But the good news is that the owner sent his son. That Jesus Christ, the son of God, came and lived the perfect life that none of us could live, He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again so that if we'll trust in him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. We'll be forgiven of our sins, we'll be reconciled to God, and now, even though we were the wicked managers who misused everything that God gave us, because of what Jesus did, we can be adopted as his sons and daughters. So if you recognize your sinfulness, you recognize that you're apart from God, turn from sin, turn from unbelief, and trust in Jesus. Trust in his death for you that the death that you should have died in hell, he died on the cross in your behalf. Trust that he was buried and that he rose again as a guarantee that all of those who would trust in him, even though we die, will rise again too, to everlasting life. That's good news. And if you'll believe it, you'll see how marvelous Jesus is. If you want to continue running your own life, be in your own authority. You'll see the ways that that breaks. You'll see the ways that you can't handle it all. You'll see the ways that that falls apart. You'll think that you're enjoying freedom from restrictions, freedom from laws, freedom from rules. But if you look at yourself honestly, you'll realize you're becoming more and more enslaved, more and more addicted, more and more trapped. And Jesus, in his glorious gospel, offers the way out. Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for sending your son. Lord, you've blessed us with so much and we've mismanaged it, we've misused it. We've used it for our glory, we've used it for our gain, we've used it for what we thought would be our good. We've messed everything up. But still, even though you were wise and powerful and could have sent a militia, you sent your son. So Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that it was completely undeserved It was completely unearned. It was all of grace. We're amazed at that. We're in awe of that. Lord, you don't just command us, but you love us. And there is no other God like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.